please do that. We're at the very end of John 10, verses 31 to 42. We're kind of continuing the I and the Father are one discourse. We didn't really call it that last week and the week before, but that's basically what Jesus is doing here in these middle chapters of John is, is he is uh, self-disclosing as the Son of God. And it's uh, another very dynamic setting uh, with people who want to kill Jesus mixed with people who are starting to believe in him. And that's um, something I hope that you're seeing in our study in John is that this is, this is what Jesus does. Um, it is a, a great it's a picture of truth, picture of reality, a picture of Christian ministry, maybe of Christian life in general. When we in any way live evangelistically, um, this is what, what we tend to see. Um, it's, it's a reminder that Christianity's message sometimes isn't palatable. Uh, it cuts like a knife. That, uh, the, the, the idea that Jesus came to save us and to tell us that we need him uh, and, and not to flatter us or give us a few life hacks for healthy living, but uh, to come as God and to say that, um, that, that I am here and I love you and I'm, I'm here to save you, apart from all that you've done, uh, is uh, the best news in the universe, but, but also very offensive. So it, it would make sense that we would see this type of like cutting like a knife between types of people um, in cities or towns or families or amongst friendship circles that that Jesus, though he is the epitome of peace, he says elsewhere in a different gospel that he didn't come for peace in some senses of the word, but came to uh, be, be more like a sword. He came to cut like, cut like a knife and to uh, divide people along the lines of what people do with him. So uh, that type of theology is offensive. That, that type of grace is offensive. And many cover their ears in angst, but others are there breathing a deep sigh of relief and are running to him with tears of joy and open arms. And that's what we're seeing, uh, have been seen and, and are seen today as well. So let's, um, let's dive in. Today's sermon is titled, That Time Jesus Used the Most Confusing Psalm Ever to Prove That He Was the Son of God. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get into that in just a second. But John 10, 31 to 42, picking up here right where we left off last week in verse, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father had consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and he said, John did, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. All right, let's go back and kind of work from top to bottom. Three sections here today. We'll start with uh, the so-called blasphemy and the almost stoning. So uh, blasphemy, kind of a loaded word and maybe kind of confusing, but basically um, just means, and I think the passage kind of defines it in context, but blasphemy just simply means speaking 
in a defiant and sacrilegious way about God. So last week, verse 30, the passage from last week ended with Jesus saying quite clearly um, and, and not tiptoeing in any way, he said, I and the Father are one. Uh, he, he's saying in that we are the same. He, he is saying, as uh, it more clearly says elsewhere, uh, I am God. To say that you are the Son of God is to say that you are God. Uh, again, he's not um, being ambiguous. He's not tiptoeing. It, it is another iteration in his divine self-disclosure, which has been a big deal in John. And it's clear for the Jews as well, right? Because th- there's a reason why they immediately pick up stones to stone him. They know what he's saying. It's clear. So now before we move on to Jesus' response, I think it's important to see in this, in the people's actions, a glimpse of what I'll just call the, the human problem, broadly speaking. Um, and in a nutshell, it's that we don't like it when people flex. We, we tend to react against that. And when, they, when people in any way, even if they do it very gently and respectfully, in, in any way with their words or actions, when they take a position over us, and in that way, flex, we, you know, we, we tend to, to, to react against it. And um, in a way, you could say this is the essence of sin, or it might be just a glimpse of what the essence of sin is, depending on the severity of how this presents in our heart. Um, and, and though sin has many heads, like a hydra dragon, the main one, uh, you could argue, I think quite, quite easily from the Bible, the main one is pride. The, the main one is self-deification or self-reliance. And interpersonal comparison, whenever that's kind of thrusted upon us in life, we may not be looking for that, but whenever a moment of that comes into our lives, uh, that that can serve as gasoline to the spark or gasoline to the fire of of this idea. I don't know if any of you guys are NBA fans or not. I'm actually not uh, necessarily, but uh, I came across this thing that Kevin Durant said uh, this week. Kevin Durant is um, an NBA player, a basketball player, uh, for the Brooklyn Nets, I believe, and um, he was in the news for saying that, or calling himself the God. I don't know if you guys heard this or not. Um, it was in response to some criticism that he was facing, and he basically just said, uh, why do you guys got to talk about the God in these terms, uh, referring to, to himself? And so, um, so th- that kind of thing, as you can imagine, just kind of reading comments on, this is some kind of social media post, I'm not sure where it originated, maybe Twitter, but um, the comments are uh, quite varied, but it's interesting to see that, that you know, most people read that as very, very negative, very arrogant. So um, the responses might range you know, from all-out cries of blasphemy you know, from the religious crowd to something a bit more moderated like, man, that guy is arrogant, wow, you know, um, to something a bit more benign like, as good of a, as a basketball player as you are, Kevin, I think you maybe think a little too highly of yourself here. Uh, you know, it is, it's just a game, man. Just relax. Um, but whatever our response, we know that something's off when people speak in those terms, if not, if not outright evil about it. And, and the point is this. This is exactly what's going on in John 6. Or sorry, in John uh, chapter 10. But on a heightened level. Because we're, we're dealing with God, and, and not just a picture of pride, but a picture of rebellion against God. And, and the son, who's actually telling the truth, he's not blaspheming here, um, but, but a picture of rebellion against God for the sake of the self. 
And it doesn't matter that the Jews don't know they're talking to God. They are talking to God. And they're ready to kill him for exerting his divine authority and taking his rightful place uh, above them, even though he's doing it very kind of passingly and very matter-of-factly and very gently, um, they're ready to, to kill him for it. And in that, I think, and to kind of circle back then to what I was saying about this being a picture of the human experience or the human problem, in all of that, the crowd here is a dramatization of us all. I don't know if you guys remember when people were tearing down statues uh, last year sometime or whenever that was. Um, and, and by the way, this is not a political statement at all. I don't really care about that stuff. Um, but this is a theological statement. When, when people were tearing down or, or do tear down a statue of someone that they don't think is worthy of a statue for whatever reason, they invariably, in their hearts, put up a statue of themselves in its place. And that's what we've done with God. To rebel against God and go our own way is to bring him down, and to bring him down is to bring ourselves up like a counterweight. Uh, you, you can't do one without the other. Martin Luther said, uh, man is by nature unable to want God to be God. Indeed, he wants himself to be God and does not want God to be God. Uh, again, th th this is what we've done. We have tore down God's statue, essentially. Um, and there's many ways that can look. Uh, we don't have to feel like we're doing this to actually be doing it. Um, but we've tore it down, though he never did anything wrong. And we have put up a statue of ourselves, and not just ourselves, but our agendas, our polished social media personas, and even statues of our good works. We have put those things up uh, in his place. Um, and so what, what Jesus does here then to all of that, and this is a bit more background, uh, all, the, all that I'm saying here, but what Jesus does here in context is, is uh, essentially throws them a curveball. And some of this will actually sound a bit contradictory even to what I just said, but just hang with me as we reread this in verses 34 and following. Um, but I think that before I even say this, I think you can kind of start to get a picture of the gospel in how Jesus here doesn't recoil. Um, at, at what they're doing. He reacts, he responds, he pokes back, definitely, but he's not um, the epitome of what we might think of when we think of disgust, you know? Uh, but he is somehow just there in the midst of it. And um, the gospel is basically that, that God came into the muck and came to just go nose to nose, and I mean physically so, like nose to nose with our sin and deal with it, and absorb it, and die for it. And that's what we're going to eventually see here today. If you don't know the gospel, that's one way of saying it, uh, that Jesus died for our sins. Um, he didn't so much teach us uh, to not do them. Uh, we, we are helplessly and hopelessly dead in our sins. And so we needed someone to come from outside of us and save us. And I think you're getting a good glimpse of that here. Just by Jesus' presence, uh, in that he didn't run or repel or recoil when the, uh, when the crowd picked up stones to kill him. All right, more on that later. But let's move to this next section now, which I'm calling, uh, or basically kind of quoting the Bible here, when the Bible says, you are gods. Uh, and this, this uh, natural question that might come from that, that, that is basically, uh, you know, uh, what? What is, it? what is the Bible actually saying here? Uh, and so we'll talk about that. But verses 34 and following to remind you, is when it says, 
Jesus answered them, now he's quoting from Psalm 82 in the Old Testament, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? All right, so the genius of Jesus' response here is, uh, is really manifold, and I'll, and I'll talk about a lot of it today, but three kind of initial things to start with. Uh, one, he uses the Old Testament to respond. So again, quoting from Psalm 82.6. Uh, so kind of throwing the Jews a bone. This was, this, was, this was their scriptures. Psalm 82 would have been something that many of them were very familiar with. Many of them probably had it memorized. All right, so he's, in that sense, um, utilize, kind of floating something out toward them, towards them that they could agree on. Uh, but second, he calls it, quote, their law. Uh, which I think, it, you know, there, there's more going on there than I'm going to give time to today. But to call it their law, uh, even though God wrote it, even though Jesus wrote it, um, is to put them back on their heels a bit. You know, Jesus is kind of saying with that, those couple of words, he's saying, uh, this is yours. The Old Testament is, uh, in a sense, kind of the people's testament. Uh, it, it, because it has to do so much with, with you and, and your works. Um, even though I wrote it, this is yours. And now, but now I'm here to fulfill it and replace it. Uh, my testament is, my covenant is just over the horizon, ready to break in like the dawn. Uh, so for, for listeners to, to hear Jesus talk in these terms, it would have put the Old Testament in a sense kind of on the back shelf or on the back burner or to help them understand it in its, in its uh, you know, and how God wanted us to understand it, which, which is to say it was preparatory. Uh, it was going to give way to something related but different and, and much, much better. All right, then the third thing is he uses a lesser to greater argument that would have been very familiar to the Jews. This was a common method of debating for them. And I think just in general makes, makes a lot of sense. Essentially what he's saying is uh, if God calls human beings gods in Scripture and they're not actually gods, then how much more appropriate is it for me, the true God-man, to say, I am the Son of God? That, that, that's basically his argument. Now, that said, there's much more to say about this really difficult passage. Um, you know, one question you might be asking is, didn't we just get done saying that making yourself into a god is the core of sin? Um, you know, are, are we now saying Kevin Durant was right in some way? Uh, and no, we're not saying that, but, but the question w would be logical. And, uh, and so, but, but I want to walk through how uh, the, you know, the, the trunk of this idea essentially branches out into other theological ideas that also affect our lives and are also important to understand, and that I also think maybe further clarify what is going on in Psalm 82 and why Jesus is using it here, or especially just kind of why the verse exists at all, because we're going to really back up here, even outside of John 10, and uh, talk about this uh, conceptually. All right, so uh, the first, uh, in, in one sense, this is just saying that people are made in God's image. So as we use other um, doctrines, uh, in this case, the image of God, the Imago Dei, uh, or um, seek to rationalize the, the presence of this verse in the Bible. 
in one sense, this is just saying that people are made in, in God's image. It's like uh, you parents who have ever talked about your kids as though they are your mini-me. Uh, it, we do this, right? Um, it, it's, it's sort of like that. Genesis 1, 26, 27, God says he made them male and female. Uh, in, God, in his own image, he made them. And, um, and so it's, it's actually the first chapter of the whole Bible talks about this. It's in, in some ways kind of stage setting. Um, but in a more particular sense, leader types, or think of like Old Testament kings, for example, uh, which are, are talked about in, in these terms, are representatives of God. And so saying lowercase g God uh, about them and about leaders and about figures who um, picture God or typify him or represent him isn't all that weird. But taking this further and forward into the New Testament, off of the idea that it's even more particularly God's people, His chosen ones. So think of uh, Israel in a kind of a, was sort of this in the Old Testament, but the church now, Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus are especially this. Um, so to think about even more particularly God's, it's God's people who are called gods, even though there's only one God, uh, I, I think that this verse is a nod to how mysteriously but beautifully God not only makes us into his image, but he dwells within us when he saves us. It's, it's like when the Bible says in the Old Testament, only God is holy. And yet in the New Testament, it refers to Christians as holy all the time. Well, how can that be? Uh, or how God has only one son, and yet we are called sons and daughters of God as Christians. Uh, how can that be? How can those things go together? And the answer to these tensions and others is the doctrine of union with Christ. Like a branch to a vine, uh, we, we are that connected to Jesus when we are saved. We are that close to him. Uh, and, and like Jesus says here in today's passage, he says, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is, how, um, this is how the Bible talks. This is how Jesus talks. This is how we are to think when we think theologically about what's real and about what the outcome of our salvation really is. But even here, just the core of, uh, of even who God is, as he is one who shares himself uh, with people and, and dwells in them. And so, um, so there's a difference then between saying we are gods unto ourselves, which is a lie from the pit of hell, and saying, as image bearers, we represent God, which is very true. But even more, as Christians, we have been indwelt by the one God who makes himself one spirit with us. And we are so incredibly close to him now because of Jesus that it changes everything. So second, the second piece to this, the branch of sorts that kind of branches off the trunk of uh, Psalm 82.6, if you want to think about it that way, is that when it's related to Jesus, who is God in the flesh and who came down to save, uh, I think helps, relatedly, bring heaven down to earth rather than presents us with a ladder that we must climb to heaven through our own moral effort. So the idea here is that maybe God brings to us what we thought was our job to accomplish ourselves. Uh, it, it's like going to uh, build a house and, and you show up to the job site uh, with a backhoe to dig a hole. You have your plans in your hand, a crew, 
all your tools are there, and you show up and the house is totally done, like completely. It's perfect. It's pristine. And you realize, like, I literally now have nothing to do. And, and I think Christianity is, is like that. It's like having that feeling over and over and over again in life. Uh, in some days, it's a breath of fresh air. Uh, in some days, it's offensive um, because we want to work. Uh, but but that's, like, that's what it means to be a Christian and to grow and to kind of plod ahead uh, to the promised land is to realize that everything has been done. And, and I think Psalm 82.6, uh, this, um, this weird statement that God somehow calls human beings uh, lowercase g gods, I think is a nod to, well, maybe God is closer than we think. Maybe he has done more to bring us close to him and to save us uh, than we think. And I think it just starts to make us stop climbing or stop working or stop building and instead, and, and, and stop looking at the chasm that exists between us and God and start looking more at Jesus who came down to be the truth and to be the hope and to be the peace and to be the answer of all the questions we've ever asked and the, and the problems we've ever had. And so again, chasms make you want to start fixing a problem, right? But if, if we start to hear that the Bible talk in terms as though that's not really the case anymore. Like I think of Acts 17 where uh, Paul's in Athens and he's, and he's preaching the gospel to these Greeks, these, these Athenians for the first time. And part of the way he preaches the gospel to them is to say, God is closer to you than you think. And when we start to realize that, we start to stop doing something to get him closer or to get ourselves closer. This is part of the gospel. And and of course, the, as Christians, we have a very specific um, answer for how God ultimately bridges that gulf. It's through Jesus. It's through the death of Jesus. It's through the resurrection of Jesus. And, and Paul talks about that. But for these Greeks to hear that was first and foremost and pivotal. They had to understand that God has come towards them, that, that whatever chasm they thought was in between them and God, in some sense there was a chasm because they weren't Christians yet, but in another sense, they had to understand that the answer is not them trying to fix the chasm, but instead believing in the God who has fixed it for them. All right, so let me say this one more time for clarity, but in a different way, if this just helps you guys who like to think in comparative terms. Religion says there is gold at the top of the mountain. Start climbing. Progressive or, or extremely liberal forms of Christianity, or think of like pop culture as well, says, you are the gold. There is no mountain. But biblical Christianity says, the gold has come down the mountain and has been given to you undeservedly at great cost to the giver. And some of the gold dust is rubbing off on your hands and arms and you are starting to look a bit more golden every day. All right, there's more to say about this psalm, but, but before we get there, um, I want to look at verses 37 and following because I, I think seeing what's happening here kind of sets up the final angle on Psalm 82.6 as well as um, maybe why Jesus is using it here, which may not even be the primary reason, but it's uh, strangely the most important 
things sometimes are, are the most important that aren't the most explicit. Um, and I think we, that's one thing we're, we're seeing today, all right? This last section then is called Believe the Works. Uh, verse 37, Jesus says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All right, so, so first notice that Jesus draws people to believe in his works rather than calls them to do works. Oh, that's a huge difference, right? Uh, he, he's saying, I am here to do work for you. And, and that work should be, be partly uh, in the crosshairs of your theological consideration, of, of your questions about life and about God and about what it means to, to have hope for living forever, to be saved. I am here to do work for you. Believe in those works. Um, and as we've been saying and showing so much in this series, Jesus' works are not all created equal. Uh, the greatest work that all his other lesser works point to is his substitutionary death on a cross for our sins. Full stop. And it's there that he communicates to us about who the Father is at the highest level. Like note again in verse 37, 38 here, um, that there, Jesus is doing the works of God, the works of the Father. He is the Son, but he's doing the Father's works. And so, um, that, that's, and that's all-encompassing. And so the, the idea is when Jesus is dying on a cross for our sins, that's revealing the work of God to us. Uh, as well, not just the works of the Son. In one of his most important writings, Works of Love, uh, the late Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, talks about how true love cannot be expressed directly, meaning it needs another kind of expression or channel, a, a chemical reagent of sorts. Uh, it needs to be sung it needs to be shown and expressed indirectly in order to be uh, truly expressed and maybe tr for the receiver, maybe truly heard or listened to or seen. A uh, good example of this is in my marriage to, to Aletha. Um, I'm kind of a words guy, so I, um, one way I like to express love is, is in that direct sense of speaking it, and, and I tell her I love her, you know, 20 times a day some days, no exaggeration. It's just like, it's just in passing and quickly and, uh, or more substantially, you know, uh, when we're on a date or something like that. Um, but sometimes when I say that, you know, to her, I don't feel like it's working, you know, like, like, it's, um, like it's hitting a wall, like it's a BB off of a brick wall uh, and no, no penetration, no dent, like, like nothing. And, um, and that's not her fault, I think that's just the nature. This gets back to what Kierkegaard is saying, and I think what the Bible's even more saying, is that love, for some reason, it has a hard time being expressed directly. And we all live in God's world. This is the Father's world. And He has set things up in this way. We don't always know why. But if it's true, and it is, then we would also expect this to be true with God. We would expect God to express his love for us in indirect, not just direct, though he does in direct ways as well, but especially in indirect ways. And the way that he shows us his love 
Let me say it this way. The way that he shows us his love is not directly, but indirectly through a bloody cross. Through the most unsuspecting things in history, period. Uh, Like Romans 5.8 says that this is how God shows us his love. That he he bleeds out on a cross uh, for, for criminals, for his enemies, people like us. That's how he shows us his love. Uh, he doesn't just say it. He doesn't just tell us. Uh, he, he shows it. And in the showing, he expresses that his heart is so much in love with us uh, that we have no idea, no, no conception, but, but, but the indirect expression, the song of the cross, the poem of the cross, the visual, uh, the action of love that is sacrificial love there uh, screams it from, from the highest of mountains. And, and it's interesting To circle back to Psalm 82, in context, I'm going to read verses 6, 7, and 8 now. Uh, It says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And let me give you like a, just a, five-second crash course in the Psalms here, and that is to say the Psalms in the Old Testament are prophetic. Uh, the New Testament's not shy about this. In, in light of everything that, then that we said before about how to understand Psalm 82 and how Jesus used it in John 10, in, in a lot of ways we can shelve all of that to the side for this final and greater interpretation. And that is, the psalm isn't ultimately about you. It's about Jesus. Jesus is, to use Psalm 82's language, Jesus is the ultimate son. He's the ultimate son of God. He is the ultimate man who died. He is the ultimate prince who fell, who then died for our sins. He is the ultimate one who rose up from verse 8, rose up from the grave and who is now the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 82 is about Jesus. It is another, you could say, an indirect expression of his love. It's a, a forecast. It's a type. It's a look ahead. It's a prophecy. And so Jesus then in his genius not only quotes a psalm that serves as an effector lesser to greater argument to prove that he's actually God's son, that this isn't out of left field, that God has been preparing for this time since the dawn of time. But he's also been talking here, or also talks here about what it means to be God's son, what his true mission is, and that is to be a suffering servant. To come as God's son in the spirit of the psalm, even though he is God's son, he would die. Or nevertheless, uh, to to use the word from the ESV here in in Psalm 82, nevertheless, he would die. So again, we say this all the time and sing this, right? We talk about though he was God, though he was perfect, though he had never done anything wrong, he would die on a cross for our sins. And when he dies, he would, would show forth the scandal of all scandals and, and serve as the injustice of all injustices, but 
um, but be the epitome of true love. For he died for you, and he died for me, that, that we might live. In fact, that's what you see in verse 39, I think, uh, and we'll start to wrap up here. Verse 39 says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands, and many believed in him there. And, and this is why I think this happens. I, I don't think that Jesus, this mention of Jesus escaping from their hands is, is only to say that he is God and all-powerful and, and that you can't really arrest God unless he wants to be. Um, nor is it just to say that it wasn't yet Jesus' time to die, though I think it is saying that. But I think it's also saying that as a human being, Jesus was exemplifying something about salvation here that would relate to us. What he would make possible for us when he dies in our place. And that is, even though Jesus escapes from their hands here, he doesn't later. I look at Mark 14, 46 says, it says, They laid hands on Jesus and seized him in order to crucify him. So do you see how the rest of the Bible here, um, when you read things like this in light of what's coming, which you always must do this, we have to do this, um, we will always fail to understand if we treat smaller stories as though they are islands, uh, they're part of a greater narrative. And when you do that here in John 10, you, you start, and then when you see places like Mark 14 as kind of an end cap or a finish line of sorts, to passages like this, you start to see the theme of substitution play out. That even though Jesus is escaping here, he won't later. And the Bible then is on a, it's on a, a crash course. It is um, making a beeline ahead in the story to a time where we will escape, um, but, but he won't. Um, in fact, going back to the first part of the passage, you see it there too with the idea of blasphemy. And Jesus being accused of something that he didn't do. Um, but how he was almost stoned to death right there uh, on the streets. Uh, and that is, our blasphemy is forgiven by him being considered a blasphemer. That's the gospel. Like our setting up of statues of ourselves and our good works. Our, our blasphemy, our rejection of God are speaking in a sacrilegious way about him, whether we do that outright or feel like we are God-haters or have been, or, or whether we do it more subtly. The point is we've all done it. We've all gone our own way. We've all snubbed our nose um, and in that way rebelled and taken up arms against him. But what I think John 10 is saying is our blasphemy will be hinting at is our blasphemy is forgiven by him being called and considered a blasphemer. And like uh, in the book, in the, one of the Corinthians, it says that um, God is, or Jesus would be uh, counted as a sinner. Uh, he would become sin, even though he knew no sin. And through that, we would become the righteousness of God. Um, and so again, whether you see it in terms of blasphemy or escape, you know, our blasphemy is forgiven by him taking that place, but... Our escape comes from his capture. And, and that's what I think God wants uh, us all to hear. Many things here today, I'm not going to recap all of it here to, to close, but, but please hear that. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to say, look at my works. 
the ultimate form of that, which would show forth the true love of God, is that I will not escape someday. Even though I'm God in the flesh, I will let myself be arrested. I will let myself not escape. I will not run. I will take on your sin and I will be captured and arrested and put to open shame. And I will suffer horribly on a cross so that you can escape from your sin. You can escape from death once and for all when you cling to me and believe in me and profess faith uh, that, that I am who I said I, I was and I am who I said I am. And I always will be. I am the son of God. I'm not a man, not a moral teacher. I'm not your life coach. I have come to draw you to myself and to what I do for you. Not call you to do, not call you to be, but look at my works. Don't start doing, but look at my works and believe and you'll be saved and you will see true love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage today. Um, I, I just pray it over uh, myself and everyone here today and all those who couldn't be here. I pray for our church that you would help us to believe the gospel, that it would be sweet to us. Uh, I, I pray that we would hear your voice call out to us saying, look at me, look at my works, see in them true love. Look to the bloody cross and see the indirect expression of the love of your creator and, and rest and believe in me and even just like relax knowing that the Bible isn't as much about us as we thought. Uh, just like salvation is not as much about us uh, as, as we thought. So whether we read or ruminate or sing or whatever we're doing throughout our day, um, Spirit, remind us, draw us back to the thing that truly matters, which is the death, the loving death, and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.